Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for August 14th, 2023. Here's today's rundown. There is growing talk about America's hospitals evolving to become smart hospitals. Could they? Will they? From New York, Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roche continues his series about smart hospitals. Also with us today, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Kate Brantley, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, we are monitoring another public health emergency, this one in the state of Hawaii, where the recent wildfires there have claimed at least 96 lives. We have much news to report, so we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. There's lots to report today. First, a bill has been introduced in Congress to once again try and get observation days to count for the three-day stay requirement for Part A SNF skilled nursing facility coverage by Medicare. Now, similar bills have been introduced in the past over the last 10 years, and they never get anywhere, so I have little faith that this one will be any different. In addition, to me, it makes no sense to limit it to counting observation days. Congress just needs to get rid of the whole three-day stay requirement. Next, I have an update on the Levanta memo about short inpatient stays. And honestly, I'm still digesting it. But I was looking through my files, and I noticed that in March, Levanta released a report on their short-stay audit performance up to that point. And to my amazement, they reported that they had denied 11 short inpatient stays with the diagnosis of melana and 11 with the diagnosis of gastrointestinal hemorrhage. Now, that's the exact circumstances of one of their case examples in their memo. In addition, they denied 10 cases each with non-ST elevation MI, ventricular tachycardia, and amazingly, 10 admissions with complete heart block. These results from earlier this year are in complete opposition to what the memo outlines as acceptable inpatient admissions. I just don't know what to do. But the bigger news is that on Friday afternoon, Nina Youngstrom's newsletter, the report on Medicare compliance, reported that CMS had reviewed the Levanta memo prior to publication. This is huge. If CMS did not support the case examples, they would not have let Levanta release it. Now, the talk in the discussion groups is that most don't trust Levanta to abide by this. And I'm also mildly skeptical, but knowing that CMS reviewed this should go a long way to reducing hesitation, at least about admitting all emergent cholecystitis and appendicitis patients as inpatient. Get a copy of her article from your compliance officer and read it. Now, this also brings me to a fascinating proposal sent to me by a revenue cycle leader. They had several Medicare patients who were admitted as inpatient for cholecystitis or appendicitis and had a one-day stay where they self-denied them and rebuilt a Part B. Now, this person is considering refunding the Part B payment, then filing a corrected claim based on the inpatient order. That'll get them the DRG that Levanta states is the appropriate payment and an additional $7,000 or so. In fact, now that Levanta has provided these examples, maybe everyone should go back and look at all of their short stays that they self-denied. 
Now, what is unclear is how this will be viewed by all of the, the, um, the auditors. If you follow the requirements for self-denial with UR committee review and patient notification, what is the process to reverse that? I really don't know. Now, one last unrelated topic. I was contacted by a hospital asking me how CMS calculates length of stay. Their concern was that their hospital leaders calculate length of stay from the start of care in the ED to discharge, and then they compare that to the Medicare GMLOS for the DRG. Well, CMS uses the date of inpatient admission for length of stay calculations and ignores any outpatient or observation days, exactly the opposite of what her leaders do. As I told this person, measuring something this way is statistical malpractice. The only way to have a length of stay better than the GMLOS in her system is to discharge unstable patients, and that would be medical malpractice. I hope this patient, this person can resolve this dilemma. It really is senseless. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday round here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today's topic is the price of an error in the ER. When I say that, you're probably imagining an awful scenario like leaving a sponge in someone's stomach because obviously that is an error in the ER. But I'm not talking about an error on the part of a doctor. Instead, I'm referring to an error on the part of the government, which in my line of work happens every single day. Much to the chagrin of numerous hospitals and ER physicians, the government is erroneously terminating the Medicare privileges for an ER doctor. It happens all the time. Unfortunately for the doctor and the hospital, when the government erroneously terminates an ER doctor's Medicare privileges, the ER physician loses his or her career temporarily and the hospital loses one ER physician temporarily. So what does a hospital do when one of its own ER physicians loses his or her Medicare privileges? Well, I mean, it calls me or an attorney like David Glazier, because without Medicare privileges, a hospital cannot bill Medicare for services conducted by the terminated physician which can mean hundreds of thousands of dollars. Currently, I have about four to six physician hospital clients with an out-of-work ER doctor. When this happens, the ER doctor is as upset or more upset as the hospital because the doctor loses his, his or her high-paying salary as quickly as a snap of the fingers for a computer glitch. Many times, even though the terminated doctor, technically my client, the hospital is willing to pay the bill. The hospital is almost as upset as the terminated doctor, especially if it's a prominent, experienced, and seasoned doctor. As one of my ER doctor clients said, completely reasonably, I'm board certified in emergency room medicine. I'm not trained in anything else. To which I said, let's get you back to work. So how do I do it? 
Well, in truth, I have a connection. The CMS Special Deputy Director of Provider Enrollment Appeals just happens to be my buddy. He's not really my buddy, but I'm doing that in quotes. And having a buddy in his position has turned out to be extremely advantageous. I've got his direct number and I use it often. Since he's the head of provider enrollment appeals, when you talk to him, you're talking to the horse's mouth, so to speak, metaphorically. I'm not going to say his name in case he listens to this podcast, but going back to my topic, one of my emergency room doctors was erroneously terminated from Medicare because the state of Texas had accidentally terminated him for Medicaid. Once CMS's computer system learned of the doctor's erroneous Texas Medicaid termination, the computer system automatically terminated him from Medicare. But the Texas Medicaid termination was an accident. It was not an error. It was an accident. I have no idea why Texas Medicaid terminated him, but the doctor was immediately temporarily terminated from his position, and he was the chief of emergency room medicine. So the hospital was out a key employee. The hospital ponied up the retainer for me. Well, talking to my buddy, I found this out, and who knew? CMS updates its preclusion list once a month. So let's say um, it's updated in the first of every month. Say my doc's Texas Medicaid termination was effective August 1. August 2, CMS's computer system would terminate because of the Medicaid termination. And until August 31st or September 1st, 2023, according to CMS, that Texas doc is effectively terminated from Medicaid. So you fix the problem with Texas Medicaid say on, you know, in the middle of the month, CMS still will not be informed until September 1st. So you should have a direct link to CMS provider enrollment appeals. You may get back to work quicker. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Kate Brantley with a Monitor Monday legislative update, and Edward M. Roach, who's standing by in New York to report our lead story. Folks, it is Monday, it's August 14th, and you'll listen to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Here's good news. Coming your way soon is the highly anticipated Rack Monitor webcast, CMS 2024 Rule Update, unveiling essential insights for case management and utilization review preparedness. In just 60 minutes, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will share his expertise, providing a concise breakdown of thousands of pages of CMS documents. You'll gain an unwavering grasp of the 2024 Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule along with the proposed rules for the 2024 Outpatient Prospective Payment System and Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Failure to comply with these changes exposes you to regulatory action, revenue setbacks, and compromised patient experiences. The webcast is Thursday, August 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Don't let this essential Rack Monitor webcast slip through your fingers. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, 
As I say every Monday morning about the same time, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk that I will be more negative than the esteemed Dr. Hirsch. Every year, he brings us Hirsch's Heroes, a positive, uplifting story. Today, I'm going to offer my segment that I'm calling David's Dumbest Denials. Now, that might make me a Debbie Downer, or dare I say a David Downer, as I alliteratively discuss disappointing decisions damaging doctors by declining disbursement of dollars. So a patient with sepsis walks into the emergency department. Anyone who's dealt with sepsis knows that it is most certainly not the beginning of a joke. In this case, the patient was hospitalized for two weeks and received a number of infusions. The Medicaid program in this state has remarkably detailed requirements, including that the infusion must record the actual start and stop time. That was done. In fact, all of the program's expectations were satisfied. The nurse signed the administration record as she was supposed to, but the nurse did not include RN after her signature. And in the eyes of the reviewer, failure to include a title merited denial of the claim. Now, if the state Medicaid program chose to deny the infusions, because a lack of degree in the signature, I would be troubled, particularly whereas here there isn't even a hint in the policy that credentials must be incorporated into a signature. But this is even worse. The state is denying the entire hospitalization. A hospital clearly entitled to $200,000 in reimbursements is being denied because the nurse merely signed her name without adding her title afterwards. If that were the end of the story, it would be appalling, but it gets even worse or better or worse. My client has received communications from the state explaining the denials. The person at the state Medicaid program sent the correspondence when signing them with her first name and the last initial of her last name. Think Lisa M. She didn't just admit her title, she admitted her last name. So while refusing to pay the entirely legitimate bill from a hospital that saved the life of a terribly ill patient, the person denying the care is doing something that, if it were improper, which it's not, is even worse than they're alleging my client did. Now, to be clear, I have no problem with the first name last initial format of the letter from the state. There's no doubt it's an official communication, and it would be stupid for me to pretend otherwise. The letter isn't invalid because it lacks a last name. So the level of chutzpah involved here from the state is simply stunning. Now we'll appeal and I'm confident we'll win. But if you're ever in a situation like this, I wanna offer a few suggestions. The first thing I did is reach out to the legal department at the State Human, uh, Department of Human Services. Now I haven't heard back, but I'm confident we're dealing with a foolish decision by a specific individual. And when this thing gets in front of a reasonable decision maker, this problem's gonna get fixed. So my advice is often to find a non-legal solution whenever possible. Contacting the lawyer may sound like a legal solution, but an email to the lawyer is going to be far more efficient and cheaper than an appeal. It hasn't succeeded yet, but I'm cautiously optimistic. So Chuck, while my David's Dumbest Denials segment may suggest that I think the glass is half empty, the fact of the matter is I'm optimistic. Since it fits with the D alliteration, I almost went with D Snyder's We're Not Gonna Take It. And we shouldn't. But I wanna be more upbeat. So I'll close with a song that I think it's more religious than I am, but it still fits. It's the call, I Still Believe. I still believe 
So I want to be upbeat rather than beat up, and a song's beat is what draws me in. So Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was Oscar attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And up next, Kate Bradley with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Kate Brantley. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Chuck. So this last week has been a roller coaster ride for CMS's No Surprises Act policies and processes, but roller coaster rides for CMS's implementation of the NSA have really become the norm. A little over a week ago, CMS put up a closed sign on its beleaguered independent dispute resolution process or IDR process and subsequently announced that they were pausing all IDR activities. The IDR process, just as a quick reminder, is the mediation process out-of-network providers can use if they want to argue the reimbursement amount they received for claims that fall under the NSA. At the time of last week's closing, the IDR process was already extremely backlogged, with IDR entities still making their way through claims from last year. CMS said they were pausing the process to give themselves time to digest a U.S. District Court ruling made the week before. In essence, the court made two significant decisions in its Texas case. First, the judge discarded a 600% increase in fees that CMS had implemented last year for the IDR. The result, for the time being, is that the fee reverts back to the original $50. The judgment also threw out language in CMS's final rule governing the federal IDR process that batching can only be used for the same or similar items and services. TMA had argued that batching should also be allowed for items and services that are provided to the same patient during the same encounter. A day after the CMS announcement that all IDR activities had been stopped, CMS announced that it was switching gears and allowing the IDR process to start back up again for at least some NSA claims, specifically claims in which the fee had already been paid. In the meantime, CMS says it will continue to digest the court's decision and promise that it would be forthcoming with guidance on how it will proceed. An interesting element in all of this is that the judge did not throw out the administrative fee increase and CMS's policy on batching because they were necessarily harmful harmful to providers. Instead, the judge ruled that CMS had not followed proper notice and rulemaking. In other words, CMS could decide to increase the fee again and impose the same batching definition, but this time make sure it does so through proper rulemaking. And that just might be an avenue CMS could take since there is a regulation on the NSA IDR process in its final stages right now. In fact, at the time of the latest court decision, the regulation was being reviewed by the White House. In the meantime, last week, another district court found in favor of CMS and the government with regard to the NSA. The court rejected the Association of Air Medical Services claim that the NSA's methodology for calculating the qualifying payment amount, or QPA, violated regulatory procedures. Which brings us back to our roller coaster analogy on NSA policy. Wins and losses and lawsuits, one after the other, opening, closing, then opening again the IDR process, and CMS is back to the drawing board with a regulation in the works. Hold on tight, y'all. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Bradley. Kate is a state legislative affairs analyst for Zealous. 
As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, there is growing talk about America's hospitals becoming smart hospitals. Those are hospitals being designed as integrated IT platforms linking together technology, patients, and providers in a very complex web of interaction. For more information on this developing story, now we switch live to Ed Roach. He is in New York with our lead story. So, Ed, are they really smart hospitals or are we kidding ourselves? They're getting smarter. They're not smart yet. Let's look to a bright future. What, what is a smart hospital and who has most of them and what makes them smart? Well, it's difficult to define exactly what a smart hospital is. A cynic might say the term is little more than a new slogan dreamed up by an enterprising marketing executive trying to figure out how to sell hospitals, more information systems and gadgets. After all, people are more likely to fork out the cash if everyone else is doing it. Some have defined the categories of technology that make up a smart hospital. The use of artificial intelligence, although no one as yet is evaluating hospitals based on how many doctors are being replaced by AI. No one wants to endure a doctor's strike or work slowdown as jobs are threatened. But instead, AI is focused on reading images or monitoring the dozens of signals that may be coming from a patient wired up with Internet of Things sensing devices. And there may be many patients who simply need someone to talk to, an AI programmed to care and remember. Robotics, not only for surgery, but for handling certain things such as pulling pills from the stock, working in the laboratory. And many are looking at use of robots to help move patients around or perform other tasks in the hospital, such as serving meals, talking with patients, and perhaps keeping them clean. Digital imaging, the taking, storing, moving around, accessing, and analyzing of what can be seen inside the patient, including the use of virtual reality to help guide surgery and other invasive procedures. Electronic functionalities, which means using computers to record and process more and more details of each transaction that occurs with the patient and actually with everyone else also, including insurance providers, the government, and the deadening hands of its regulatory authorities, suppliers, including pharmaceutical companies and partner healthcare providers, and even with families all tied together. Then there is telemedicine, the technologically obvious application of information technology, which somehow remained something that few insurance providers would pay for until after the COVID disaster, and now the temporary has become accepted. These categories are not evenly distributed in smart hospitals. For example, being a leader in electronic functionalities is twice as common of an indicator of a smart hospital as is artificial intelligence. Digital imaging is in second place. Robotics and telemedicine are a little less common. AI stands out at Mayo Clinic Rochester, the Cleveland Clinic, Mount Sinai in New York, the Karolinska Universitets Junkust in Sweden, and Houston Methodist. And where are the smart hospitals of the world? It seems that the United States is the leader with almost five times more smart hospitals than Germany in second place, along with the UK, Italy, France, Canada, South Korea, Japan, Switzerland, and Spain, 
Singapore has seven smart hospitals, which per capita may be the highest in the world. There's a bright future for the smart hospital. Of course, the vendors will profit handsomely selling their gadgets and complex systems development and integration services, but it is the patient who might benefit the most. Back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rock Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. He was reporting live from New York City. You're listening to Monitor Monday, folks. Too many regulatory changes, too many auditors, too many instances where if you're not up to date, it could cost your facility an audit. These are tough times for providers, and the outlook on the audit landscape is frightening. Help is here. Now more than ever, this is the time, and Rack Monitor is the place to get on board with a Rack Monitor compliance webcast subscription. Your team will benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education, Rack Monitor. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series, and your team will have the latest, most crucial information to remain compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. It's the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. Folks, we have a couple of minutes to answer your questions and comments. So, David, won't you please join me? You bet. I will be happy to. The first question is from a longtime listener, Mary Beth, actually panelist at times. Uh, so I'll, I'll pull Ron in for this one. Ron, the article by, and memo by Levanta has people confused, basically. Is there any possibility we could ask CMS for a call or Q&A with them? CMS does hold periodic open-door forums, and I certainly will be try and be the first one on the call for the next open-door forum to ask them about this. But I would encourage everybody to email them, and I'm going to put in the chat uh, or the comment section the email address for the open-door forum. Um, you can use that just to request a specific call related to this. I did email them personally, by the way, and um, about 10 people at CMS, and I've heard nothing back from any of them. All right. Thanks, Ron. So next, I've got a question from Priscilla. And then just to give Cheyenne a heads up after this, I think I'll, I'm going to go to Kate. So uh, Priscilla asked, can hospitals bill for a medical student's work? If the medical student performs an IV push in the ER, can the hospital bill the push? So there's a giant difference between facility fees and professional fees. And so when a a student is acting as the professional, basically they don't exist. Because, um, and so to the extent anyone is billing for a medical student's work, it's gonna be really for this, the supervising physician's work. So if a medical student takes a history, it doesn't count, but the supervising physician could review it with the patient. But when the student is acting as a, you know, I guess the equivalent of a nurse or a medical assistant or someone else on the, on the facility fee side, I don't know any reason that they're any different than any other employee of the hospital. And so there, the fact that they're a student really doesn't matter um, as long as they're, whatever they're doing is within the, the scope of, but there's not a license that's required for it or something like this. Uh, Kate, quick question for you. What other litigation is coming down the pike on the NSA front that people should be keeping an eye out for? We've got a couple of lawsuits that we're still looking at. So um, if you'll recall, TMA has filed four lawsuits total uh, on the NSA, and we are still waiting for the judge's decision in the third one, TMA3, which has to do with how the uh, QPA is calculated, and TMA alleges that uh, it is being artificially lowered. So we're still waiting on that. There has been a, a hearing, um, but the judge did not 
uh, come out with his decision on that at the same time as TMA4 last week, even though they were heard together. So we're still waiting on that. And then there is, of course, um, on TMA2, the government did appeal to the Fifth Circuit and they have, I believe, one side has filed their um, initial arguments and we are waiting on the plaintiffs to file theirs. And so that should take a couple months at least. Uh, if you are familiar with the court system, you know how that goes. They've already asked for an extension and been granted an extension on that. So we are still keeping an eye on that, um, but the government has thus far only appealed the one. So uh, we will keep you updated on that. Thanks, Kate. And one last question. We got about a minute left. Uh, this one's for Nicole. Can a doctor who doesn't have Medicare billing rights still work in the emergency room uh, as a salaried physician with the hospital, um, not sending claims to Medicare and Medicaid for the pro fee, but the hospital is billing for the facility fee? This is sort of like the student question. And I guess maybe, yeah, so go ahead. I didn't realize after I did my segment, Dr. Hurst said, well, they have the facility fee and the x-ray revenue and maybe an admission. And so it may behoove the hospital to keep on that ER physician, although uh, they wouldn't be able to bill for their Medicare services. And I think the big question is, is the, if the physician's excluded, that's a very different analysis than, say, not enrolled in the Medicare program. Yeah. Um, and then also, of course, there's the whole supervision requirements um, for various and, and ordering requirements. But generally, my understanding, and Nicole, you can correct me if I'm wrong, a physician doesn't have to be enrolled in Medicare to be able to order diagnostic tests, because if you opt out, you can still order diagnostic tests that are covered. That's a good point. Uh, but it br still brings me to the EMTALA issue in that you hospitals have to take Medicare. They have to accept those patients. So if the, if the physician's not enrolled in Medicare or not enrolled, but excluded Excluded, I think, is really bad because then I think they can't yeah. order any of these services. Yeah. That's a bigger issue. Chuck, I will turn it back to you. That is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Modern Money, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And a special thanks to, of course, our panelists whom you heard today, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Marlon Hirsch, and Rack Modern Investigator Ed Roach, who reported our lead story this morning. And one more thing before we go, please join me tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. That's when we launch the first of our three webcasts on the 2024 GIPS Final Rule. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Goodbye, everybody, and have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.